we're coming to the end of a series of messages that we called Game Plan because if we're going to build the kind of lives for which we were designed, if we're going to have lives that are growing deeper with one another and in our connection with God, if we're going to build lives that are expanding wider in their impact and what happens through us that influences the world for God's causes, then there are some habits that we need, there are some practices that we need to develop and massage into our lives. We've gone through a number of those and we're going to hit a really critically important one today. Today we're going to talk about the practice, we're going to add to our game plan, the practice of uplifting God's character. Uplifting God's character. Being the kind of people whose lives are like a screen on which God and God's stuff and godliness and the character of God is displayed. We're going to lift God's character up onto the front of our life. And if you want a one-word description of that, it would be holiness. We're going to look and act and feel holy. I don't know how many of you are doing this with us, but I'm so thankful for those of you that are. This has been great for me. We started in October as a church, a number of us, reading through the New Testament, and we're using these devotional guides. And this past week, there were a couple of things that really hit me about holiness. On Tuesday, we were reading from Luke chapter 3, a passage about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist goes out in the desert, and he's preaching repentance. And people are coming out to him and listening, and they're getting baptized. And this is what the devotional guide said about that. The Luke chapter 3. Regardless of how our repentance looks on the outside, this is important. Listen to this. We must realize that there is both a true and a false kind of repentance. The false kind of repentance has the appearance of devotion. It has the appearance of devotion. But it comes from a heart that trusts in personal deeds or status. And they they quote one of the things that John says in his preaching is that he's kind of mocking his listeners. And he says, you're saying we're Abraham's Sons, like that proves something. Once you realize God can raise up sons of, from, of Abraham from these stones. It's not about our deeds or our status. We must realize that a true Christian, this is awesome, is not characterized by self-reliant acts of morality. Christianity is not the same thing as moralism. So it's not about being good. It's got very little to do with being good. That's what I grew up thinking. I grew up thinking that my faith was about being good. Then the very next day, we're reading in Ephesians, this titanic passage from Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is basically explaining kind of the basics of the faith. And it's an awesome passage, and the devotional says this about it, which kind of gives you the other side of holiness. There was nothing we could do to earn this salvation. So he's talked about, you know, I've said before, the New Testament writers, they use that word when they're describing our encounter with God. They ransack the language to look for images big enough. And one of their favorite images is salvation. It's as if something has happened to us that's so dramatic, we were rescued, we were saved. He says, there's nothing we could do to earn, nothing we could do to earn the salvation. You can't be good enough. We are saved by the grace of Christ through faith alone. Trumpets, that's the bottom line. Not because of any works. In fact, Paul says that even our faith is a gift from God, leaving no room for boasting of any sort. 
than this. This does not mean, however, that our good works are pointless. They are not the root of salvation, but they are the necessary fruit of it. God has prepared good deeds for us and wants us to demonstrate the reality of our salvation by the way we live our lives. Man, that is the two sides of holiness right there. So let's tease that out a little bit this morning. We're going to look at six, they won't be long, each of them will be brief, but six characteristics of holiness that spill out of what is, for some people, honestly, their favorite chapter in the whole Bible. So we're looking at another titanic passage today. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And I'd love for you to look along with me. If you have a Bible, it's toward the back. If you take out your phone and go to mygateway.life, it will be under the sermon card. The passage is typed out there for you. We're looking at the English Standard Version. And I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, as we sometimes do here at Gateway. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. So Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 14, this is amazing. Therefore, and whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you have to ask what the therefore is there for. So this refers to chapter 12, of course, comes after chapter 11. In chapter 11 in Hebrews, the author has given us a catalog of faithful people. Remember Abraham, remember Moses, remember David. He's gone through a catalog of faithful people, just how they acted, who they were in their connection with God and in their lives. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. What? Yes. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted because life is hard and it's normal to grow weary and faint-hearted. Don't. Do this instead. In your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood, have you? It's rhetorical. We'll get to that in a minute. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Look, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Father, you know that 
We need your help in order for this to be more than just words. And that's what we ask for this morning. We ask that you would break open our chests, massage this truth into our hearts, and you'd make it real. It would have an impact so that we would have an impact. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In 1927, the uh, film director Cecil B. DeMille cast British-born actor H.B. Warner as Jesus in his famous silent film, King of Kings. Warner, who this actor 19 years later, by the way, played the druggist in It's a Wonderful Life. Warner was kept on a short leash during the filming of King of Kings. Cecil B. DeMille was concerned that any behavior by his lead actor that was deemed inconsistent with the image of Christ would result in negative publicity for the film. So DeMille enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up a good Jesus image, or what Cecil B. DeMille thought a Jesus image was. Warner had to sign an agreement, listen to this, that barred him for five years from appearing in any roles that would compromise his holy screen image. And during the filming, Warner was driven to and from the set with the blinds drawn on the windows in the car that he traveled in, and he wore a black veil. DeMille separated Warner from the other cast members, even forcing him to eat alone. Warner, by contract, couldn't play cards or go to ball games or ride in a convertible or go swimming. DeMille wanted Warner to be completely other, completely set apart. Now, when you read the New Testament, it becomes clear that the Greek word hagios is a critically important, even central concept to the whole understanding of the project, of the whole writing of the New Testament. This word hagios is uh, translated as holy 155 times. It's translated holy one five times. It's translated holy place or sanctuary, 10 times, and it's translated saint, 61 times. Often, it refers to God. The meaning of the word hagios is, in the first order, it means set apart, unique, other than, utterly different. Secondarily, it means morally pure, without blemish. At least one, this is such an important concept for God. At least one commentator said that this word is essentially a synonym for God himself. So, it's important. Of the 155 times it appears it's translated holy, 95 of those times refer to God. Many of those are the Holy Spirit. But the other 60 times that word refers to us. And when you combine that with the 61 times it's translated saints, that means that this word refers to us over 120 times. So what does it mean in us and for us? What do we look like when we're holy? At the end of today, we're going to ask, why should we even try? But today, I want to give six characteristics of holiness that spill out from this author in Hebrews chapter 12 and I have prayed that you and I will remember these. Number one, holy people are inspired by holy people who have gone before them. 
Holy people are inspired by holy people who have gone before them. I've told you over the last few weeks that I've been reading the biography of Martin Luther. I have finished now, but Martin Luther, this biography is called Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered the Bible and changed the world, and he did. And it's a great biography, very, very inspiring, and it just, this guy had an epic focus on knowing God and pursuing God and knowing what God was like and connecting to him. And I mean, his whole life was devoted to that. It was incredibly inspiring. This is why we read the Bible. The Bible is the primary source of this inspiration. Most of you know, a few weeks ago, Diane and I had, the, my wife and I, Diane, had the privilege of going to Israel. And it was unbelievable to be there and to hear our guide telling these stories about, we're, we're in the desert near the Dead Sea, and we pass this one spot, the bus pulls up, the guide points over and he says, that's En Gedi. And it's just this little creek with some holes in rock and some caves. It's a pretty desolate looking place. And he says, you know, that's where King David hid from King Saul. And I was reminded of David's story because holy people are inspired by holy people. And I remember that when David was young, he was just a little shepherd boy minding his own business just from this family. And some guy shows up who's a famous prophet in Israel and says, you're going to be king. And David is like, what are you talking about? And then sometime later, he's invited to the temple to play harp for the the king of Israel. And he, he gets to be around the palace. David has got to be thinking at that point, wow, I love this God stuff. That must be how God's will works. You know, you you start to get in God's will, and everything just goes up and to the right. It just falls into place in this awesome. And then the next thing he knows, the king is throwing spears at him. And he's running for his life. And David's got to be thinking, what happened? What what happened to God's will? And he goes out to En Gedi, and in this desperate place that Diane and I saw, he's hiding. And Saul comes after him with an army, by the way. And Saul has to use the bathroom, excuse me. So he goes to the bathroom and he happens to go into the cave where David is hiding. And David could have killed him, but instead he just cuts off a corner of his robe and David's men are like, are you stupid? You should put a a knife in his back. You don't do that to God's anointed. And I read that and see that and I think, I want to be like that. I want to be that honorable. When my life is turned upside down, I want to be that honorable. Holy people are inspired by holy people. Secondly, holy people are focused. Specifically, we're focused on what God has put before us. Holy people are focused on what God has put before us. Not this, not that, not why, not where, not when, but what God has put before us. This is why holy people, did you get the author saying, lay aside every weight that hinders. Especially, he says, sin which clings so closely. The image the author brings to mind, of course, is an athletic image of an athletic arena and of a runner. And the runner is taking off everything that will slow him down and hinder him in his run. I'm going to mix metaphors go somewhere that the author of Hebrews didn't go, but I also think of a swimmer. Think of Olympic swimmers. They shave the hair off of their bodies 
They want to eliminate anything, even the slightest, smallest thing that would slow them down. Everything that weighs her down, the Olympic swimmer puts behind herself so that she can focus on the race that has been laid out for her, on what's right in front of her. This is why holy people resist sin, even at great cost, because they're so focused. That's why the author says, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is somewhat rhetorical but he means it. He's suggesting that this is what we will do, we people who are holy. We will resist even to the point of shedding our blood. No matter what presents itself, we will press toward holiness. We will press toward what God has for us. That's the kind of people we are. Thirdly, holy people recognize God's sovereignty in and over their lives. Now, I know that there are some here with us this morning who are curious spiritually, and I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to keep coming and listen in. You may not be able to fully subscribe to this, but holy people know this. That word sovereign is a fancy word that means control. God is in control over your life. You are not. And holy people know that they recognize that God is sovereign in and over our lives. That's why he says in verse 1, the second part of verse 1, that we are running the race marked out for us. God has said, this is your race. This is your lot. I've shown it to you. What do you mean he's shown it to you? It's you're living it. It's the trial you're in right now. And holy people run that race, not wish for some other race. They recognize the sovereignty of God. Holy people see difficulty as from the hand of God. Listen to what verse 7 says. Look, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? Difficulty in the lives of holy people will be seen as from the hand of God. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you know that name, which is remarkable that you know that name. Johnny Erickson Tata is an internationally known speaker and writer. She's had a profound impact on literally millions of lives. She's also a quadriplegic, and someone has to brush her teeth, cut her food and feed it to her, comb her, bathe her, put her pajamas on, and put her to bed. After living as a quadriplegic for 45 years, Johnny Erickson Tata reflected on the diving accident that changed her life. She dove into a lake and hit her head on a rock. As a 14-year-old, Johnny had embraced Jesus as her Savior, but in her words, she had, quote, confused the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. I think she lived in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. Johnny said, listen to this, I want you to hear her. She said, I was a Christian, and I would lose weight and get good grades, get voted captain of the hockey team, go to college, marry a wonderful, handsome man who made 250000 she even had his salary, a year, and we'd have 2.5 children. It was me-focused. What can God do for me? I almost thought that I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus. She has later, plus my boyfriend and I were doing some things that we knew were wrong. In April 1967, I came home from a sordid Friday night date and I cried, oh God, I'm staining your reputation by saying I'm a Christian. Yet doing one thing on Friday night and another on Sunday morning, I'm a hypocrite. I want to change my life. Please do something in my life that will jerk it right side up because I'm making a mess of the Christian faith in my life and I don't want that. I want to glorify you. And then 
She had a diving accident. Immediately after the accident, Johnny told God, you'll never be trusted with another one of my prayers. But after struggling with anguish and anger for months, Johnny said this, I prayed one short prayer that changed my life. I prayed, oh God, if I can't die, show me how to live. That was probably the most powerful prayer I had ever prayed. Johnny has accepted her tragedy as the path laid out for her. And she's turned that tragedy into an international ministry and into a life, by the way, of incredible fulfillment. Because the only person knows that God is sovereign, they will follow God no matter what comes. Run with endurance, he says in verse 1. He doesn't say that because it's going to be a cakewalk. He says it because it's going to require endurance. And this is what holy people do. I'm reminded of Jesus. I told you all a few weeks ago, one of the things that struck me the most about the trip to Israel was Jerusalem. You remember, and I said Jerusalem was built on a, a series of hills, and here's the Mount Moriah, and on the top of it was the Temple Mount, and then there's a valley down here, and then here's the Mount of Olives. I read that. I'd never thought of it as an actual mount. And in the middle of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. We got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where there are trees that were there when Jesus was there. Think about that. We're walking around praying, and I look across, and I see Jerusalem laid out on the other side, and you can see the Temple Mount. You see where the old Roman garrison was, and they would have come out of that. They would have come through the gate, main gate of Jerusalem, and they would have, with torches at night, they would have walked down that hill and into the valley and up the hill, and Jesus saw them coming. And he says, God, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. That's what holy people do. They know that God is sovereign. And they run the race marked out for them. Fourth, holy people know and keep in mind that our faith has its foundation, its maintenance, and its growth in Christ. He says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, that means our holiness depends on God. Specifically, our holiness depends on what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's his work in us. That's the point. And it's internal work. That's why our description, and, and when they talk about it, that's why it, it involves knowing certain things and understanding certain things and recognizing certain things. In other words, holiness is primarily internal work. It's not primarily the external work of being good. It's not primarily the external work of being good. It's not primarily the external work of being good. It's not being more patient or drinking less or not looking at pornography or not shopping more than you should or it. It's not primarily the external work of being good. It is an internal work, and that internal work manifests itself in the inevitable fruit of being good. It is work that God does in us, primarily internally. That's why, as holy people, we fix our eyes on Jesus, especially in difficulty. We just figure out how to concentrate on Jesus. That's what holy people do. 
the actor H.B. Warner. Later in his life, he reflected and talked about that time when he was making the movie King of Kings. He talked about it as one of the most difficult periods in his life. Evidently, all of the rules and regulations didn't make Warner more holy. No surprise. In fact, he suggested in later interviews that it was during that period that he became an alcoholic. Holy people know that our faith has its foundation in Jesus, and he is the sustainer and builder of our faith. And that work is internal, so we fix our eyes on Jesus. Fifth, holy people understand difficulty as sometimes purposeful correction from God. I've got to read this so you'll believe me. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? If we understand this, that difficulty is sometimes purposeful adjustment, correction from God, then we'll endure it with vision. And the vision specifically is of the end toward which our difficulty points. And listen to this, verse 10. For they disciplined us, our fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he, our, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God allows what he allows so that we will be more like him, so that we will be holy. Sixth, holy people do whatever it takes to maintain a connection to God. They do whatever it takes to maintain a connection to God. Listen to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. We will not be resigned to our personal weaknesses. Holy people will not resign and surrender to their personal weaknesses. At the risk of stretching the image here, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that we're not in the business of making our hands. We don't make our knees. We're not breathing life into our knees or, for that matter, our lungs. That is God's work. We are doing whatever we can to participate with God and to maintain what God is doing in us. Holiness cannot be imposed even by ourselves. It can only be agreed with. Holiness is God's work in us, but we must agree. We must today lift up drooping hands. We must strengthen weak knees. We must make a straight path for ourselves. We must. That's what holy people do. Now look. If you're blowing it today, you're not alone. But don't surrender. Don't give in to your weak knees. Holy people do whatever they must to maintain their connection with God. You and I have to remember, giving in when we're blowing it, surrendering to our weak knees, that's the normal thing. That's what we do. That's what people do. Holy people are not normal. They don't resign to their personal weaknesses. They do whatever it takes to strengthen knees and to lift up feeble hands. 
Now, honestly, all of this sounds kind of hard. Why would we strive to be this kind of person? Why would we participate with God in his agenda of making us holy? Well, we need to step beyond our passage to answer this question fully. And I want us to do that just for a moment. I'm going to be quick, but I want us to do that for a moment this morning. Again, it's not normal, so why do this? I'm going to give just two reasons. First of all, because we know that what Paul told us is true. The alternative to this is death. Listen to what Paul says. This is Romans chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, he's going to make the argument here, we don't get to choose to not be a slave. We're slave one way or the other. We're either a slave to our passions, doing whatever we think and feel is right, or we're a slave to God. And when we are a slave to our passions, we are free, meaning we don't care about righteousness. That's true, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, holy, that's our word hagios, sanctification and its end, eternal life. Summarizes the argument. The wages, what you get as a payback from sin is death. Oh, it feels good in the short run. There's some pleasure. When you nurse that anger, it feels good for a few weeks, but the end of that is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that Paul is right. That's why we choose holiness, because the end of the alternative is death. We also know that Peter is right. We know that what Peter said is true. We know that there's healing power in our holiness to change lives. Peter says in his letter, look, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from your sinful desires, which, listen to this, wage war against your soul. Abstain. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see your good deeds and ultimately glorify God on the day he visits. Our holiness has power to change lives around us. You're worried about an, a parent or a child or a neighbor. Our holiness has the power to affect other people's lives. I read an article recently about a man who recounted an incident involving a friend of his who was a, was a visiting speaker at a conference. He would traveled to another city and spoke at a conference. This man, his friend, the traveling speaker, had an experience, he experienced an uncomfortable situation after one of his speaking sessions that frankly threatened his holiness. So I want you to listen to what this guy said in his article. After the sessions, an attractive young woman knocked on his hotel door. When he opened the door, she pushed through and walked right into the room. You can't be in here, he said. Why not, she said teasingly. Are you scared? The woman started acting seductively. She made it very clear that she was available for any sexual favor of his choosing. When he insisted that she leave, she finally did something that was over-the-top provocative. Immediately afterward, my friend wisely told two business associates exactly what happened. My friend's a godly man, but he's human. He admits he slept very little that night. He couldn't get this woman's words or related images of what she did out of his mind. He tossed and turned. Thankfully, he hadn't fallen, but he was exhausted from being so provoked. 
Two months later, he returned to that city working with the same company he'd worked with on the previous visit. And during the subsequent visit, the same young woman came up to him after a speaking event and pulled him aside. We have to talk, she said. My friend's heart started racing as he feared the worst, but her first words put him at ease. I can't thank you enough for being the first man who's ever cared more about me than my breasts. My friend learned that this woman had been abused earlier in her life. She had been promiscuous ever since her early teenage years, and because of her physical appearance, no man had ever been willing to walk away from her advances, and so she kept reliving the moment of her deepest hurt through every encounter. I'm going back to church, she told him. I need to get my life back together. When I finally met a man like you who was more interested in me than in my body, it showed me how messed up I had become. There's power in our holiness to change lives. All right, before we finish, we need to make note of what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible does not say holy people have easier lives. Holy people simply don't have serious problems. For holy people, once it starts, life just, just keeps going up and gets better and easier and more convenient. The Bible does not say holy people are always intimately aware of God's presence. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. It is as if holy people walk three inches off the ground and they glide. That image is never used in the Bible. That's never said. The Bible does not say holy people are different from you. Holy people are not like those frenetically busy northern Virginians who don't know their head from their tail. It doesn't say that. Here's what the Bible says. Holy people are inspired by holy people who have gone before them. Holy people are focused specifically on what God has laid before them. Holy people recognize God's sovereignty in and over their lives. Holy people know that our faith has its foundation, maintenance, and sustenance in Christ. Holy people understand difficulty as sometimes being correction and readjustment from God. And holy people do whatever it takes to maintain a connection to God. Let's pray. I want us to be reminded as we're praying, this is a holy meal. So I don't want you to participate this morning unless you deserve it. Which just eliminated everyone in the room. The only way to deserve this meal is to be holy. And you've blown it. <laughs> I don't even know you, many of you, and I know you've blown it. If I got to know you very well, I would know how you were blowing it. I don't want to get to know you very well because I don't like you that much, and you would know how much I'm blowing it. Here's the amazing thing. He promised us that if we go to him and say, I have blown it. Help. He says, I've been waiting. Okay, you're forgiven. And then a few minutes later, we say, are you sure? Because I really blew it. And he says, what are you talking about? Because I don't remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. 
We have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We humbly confess. We ask you to have mercy on us because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us. And you promised that you would not just forgive, but you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we receive that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. That night before he went out to Gethsemane. That night before the soldiers came and grabbed him. And he participated in the Passover meal. He took the, the bread from that meal and he said, this is my body broken for you. Because this is where our holiness begins and this is where it's perfected. This is what we keep our eyes on. Not this tray, but Jesus. The body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. Then he took the cup. I said this two weeks ago. He did what no self-respecting rabbi would ever do. He reinterpreted a 1,400-year-old ritual. They had been celebrating the Passover for 1,400 years, remembering God's deliverance. And Jesus reinterpreted it and said, all of that was me. It was pointing to me, and I was in it. This cup is my blood. And those guys were about as holy and, and women. That room, they were filled with people about as holy as us. And their response was, what? They didn't get it. We sometimes don't. But today we do. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says that they sang a hymn and went out. So we're going to sing a verse and go out, and we'll add to that standing up. Choir, let's hear it. I'm desperate for you. Open 
beside you Open up my eyes in wonder Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Thank you for coming, Gateway. Have a great week. You may go in peace.